your name. Amen. Well, let's, uh, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9. We're going to stand. I'm going to read for us Acts 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 22 together. And, uh, and then we're going to dig into it. I'm excited. The Lord has blessed me as I've studied through this passage. And uh, I believe that He will do the same now. So Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Uh, look along with me as I read. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, bless your word now as we dig into it, as we read it, as we seek to understand it. I pray your spirit would enlighten us, God. Show us how to apply the glorious lordship of Christ seen in this text to our lives, Lord. Bless us now, we pray Jesus in your name. Amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. This, uh, <clears throat> so this testimony, it's one of the most glorious and most powerful displays of the grace of God in the scriptures. Throughout the rest of the book of Acts, we are told, Saul's, who would later become Paul, we're told his testimony two other times. So we've got three accounts of this display of God's grace and mercy in this man's life. And rightfully so. For in a matter of a few days, one of the most violent persecutors of the church 
is transformed into probably the greatest missionary who ever lived. His story, it's a wondrous display of God's grace and power at work to bring transformation in the lives of His people. And even more centrally, we see what it means for Christ to be Lord. This account of Saul's conversion, it makes clear that Christ's lordship has no limits. He's Lord over all, including those who most vehemently attack His people and who most violently protest His kingdom-advancing mission. Christ is Lord. The man whose mission it was to do all he could do to stop the rule and reign of Christ in the world becomes the man who's most eager to extend the rule and reign of Christ. It's a pretty glorious account. So in this passage, we see that Jesus Christ is the Lord, both of the persecutor and the persecuted. So before jumping into the passage, the Lordship of Christ is going to be the major theme here. That's what I'm seeing all over this text, the Lordship of Christ. So before we dig right into it, we need to define some of those terms. What exactly do we mean by the Lordship of Christ, that Christ is Lord? Well, Lord is the most used title of Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. And it's the primary way that Christians throughout history have addressed or talked about their Savior. Even in this text here, 22 verses, Jesus Christ is addressed as Lord eight different times. Very important title. So again, what does this mean? Quite literally, a Lord is someone who exercises absolute ownership and absolute authority over another. A Lord is the one to whom a person or thing belongs. Okay? If you have a Lord, you belong to it. You are theirs, right? And again, the Lord over that thing or person, He has power of deciding the outcome and usage of that person or thing. A Lord is the possessor and the disposer of a thing, literally the owner of it. So to say and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord is to confess that He has absolute authority and absolute ownership over everything. That's what we're saying. Christ is Lord, therefore He has authority and ownership over the earth, over your family, over this church, over the deer, over the rivers, over the DNA molecules that are inside of you, over every single french fry that you ate at Five Guys last time you went. Christ is Lord. Y'all with me? Okay. In Matthew 28, the Lord Jesus Christ stated this in a few words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, Paul, again, this is Saul that we're reading about here who is converted. Paul then writes, he expounds on this lordship of Christ, and this is what he said. He says, he, named Jesus, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean that he was born first. That means that he is preeminent. It means that he is supreme. He is at the top, the Lord. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Ownership, authority, absolute. He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Christ is Lord because everything was created by Him and for Him. 
everything. Christ is Lord because everything is held together by Him. And Christ is Lord because through His life, death, and victorious resurrection, God is pleased to reconcile all things to Himself. Again, thus making peace by the blood of His cross. Jesus Christ, in love and in mercy, took upon Himself the sins and death of His people. He died as our substitute on the cross, and He rose victorious over the powers and the pangs of darkness. He is our conquering and our eternally victorious Lord. Amen? Isn't this what it means to be a Christian? This is the confession of the Christian. This is what it means. When you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, this is what you are saying. That I, I see this, I believe this, and I willingly submit myself and my life to this Lord. That's what it means to be a Christian. And the Lordship of Christ, what we just spelled out, is actually the greatest stumbling block for those who are apart from Christ. They choose not to submit to this lordship. Whether they can say that or not, that's what's going on. No, I'd rather be my own lord. No, I'd rather, I'd rather ascribe lordship to this other idea, this other entity, whatever it may be. But for us, for the Christian, Christ is lord. Again, the lordship of Christ is one of the greatest doctrines, one of the greatest truths about our king, our savior, and our master. We've got to relish in it, announce it, and declare it for the world to know. And in the text today, what we see is this glorious lordship of Christ exercised and then applied in the lives of Saul and Ananias. You with me? The lordship of Christ we just talked about. What we see in this text is that this lordship is exercised and then applied into their lives. That's, that's what we're going to see. And as the lordship of Christ is exercised and then applied, we learn some things of him. What does it mean that he is lord? We're going to see that he's sovereign, he's mighty, gracious, and merciful. This is how his lordship is exercised. And how do we then apply it? Then we trust him. We trust him, the Lord, and we rightfully respond to him in obedience, for he is our Lord. All right? So the first thing we see, the lordship of Christ is exercised. So we're told in verse 1 that Saul, he's breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was there in, in chapter 8, verse 1. When Stephen was executed, Paul was there. He gave approval of the execution. And then we're told in verse 3 that he would go throughout Jerusalem and that he would ravage the church. He literally was entering house after house, dragging off men and women to prison. This is what he was doing, all because of their faith. Quite literally, the air he was breathing was hatred for the Lordship of Christ. That's what he was doing. It was in his mind continually. To, to extinguish what, this, what God was doing through his people. That was his, that was his end. And apparently, he desired to take his persecuting power outside of Jerusalem. So he had received authority to then go to Damascus and do the same thing, ravage the church, end it, drag off men and women, execute them if need be. So, as he's on the road to do as he had received authority to do, the Lord shows up. Look with me what it says. Now as he, Saul, went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him, they stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground 
And although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So see this. The lordship of Christ is exercised. And as the lordship of Christ is exercised, we see that Christ the Lord is sovereign and mighty. Christ the Lord is sovereign and mighty. The Lord of all, he glimpses the persecutor with his glory. Glimpses him with his glory. Literally knocking him off his horse and leaving this guy blind. Those that were with him literally were speechless. They heard the thunderous voice, yet sight of Christ's glory was withheld from them. See the sovereignty of the Lord. He addresses Saul by name. Saul, Saul, double Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, the Lord, the Lord knows his people. He knows his people. And in his sovereignty, he writes each one of his people's stories. You see, Saul's story, it was an open book before the Lord, for he had written it. He knew what he was doing. He knew the type of man that he was. He knew his transgressions. He addressed him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he writes each one of our stories too, right? He knows us, Will, Will, Ben, Ben. He knows us. He knows our stories. He's writing it before us. The Lord is sovereign. And then look at how he identifies with the persecuted in that address. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me, the Lord Jesus says. In the midst of his people's distress, turmoil, and sufferings, the sovereign Lord was in the camp. And again, in Matthew 28, he announces his lordship. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me is the start of that text, which becomes the Great Commission. And it's ended with a promise. Lo, I am with you to the end of the age. He's fulfilling his promise right here. Why are you persecuting me? Those are my people. I am with them. You're persecuting me, Saul. He takes his people's burdens. He takes their sufferings on himself. He's a sovereign king. But he's also a mighty Lord, right? It's not, easy, it's not hard to, to see this. We see this in a couple ways in the text. First, just a glimpse of his glory knocks the persecutor to the ground and leaves him blinded until the Lord gives his sight back. I mean, takes the sight away and then he gives it right back to him. <laughs> Pretty amazing. And we know that this is only a glimpse of the glory of Christ because later Paul would write to Timothy, his disciple, he would write in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he's talking about Jesus Christ and he says that he is the blessed the only sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells, listen, in an unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen, has, no one has ever seen or can see. Paul knew that, right? <laughs> he got a glimpse, and then he couldn't see. <laughs> this Lord dwells in an unapproachable light. And we also see the, the, the might of the Lord and his directives to both Saul and Ananias. To both of them, he commands them, rise and go. And what do they do? What do they do? They went. They got up and they went. Who can command men in such a way? Who is it but the Lord who is strong and mighty? I think for all of us, we can testify to the Lord's sovereignty and his might in our own lives, right? For those of us who have submitted to Christ as Lord, we've seen it. We know how He's written our story. We've seen His sovereignty at play. We confess with Paul, He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We've seen it with our own eyes in so many different ways. We've also seen His might, that He is the mighty one. He is the one who's uh, the stronger man, who has entered into the house of the strong man, as we talked about, binds him up, and then plunders his goods for His glory. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
sovereign, and mighty. But as Christ's lordship is exercised in Saul's conversion, there's two other characteristics that we see of the lordship of Christ. We see that Christ the Lord is gracious and merciful. So first, see the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we've got to define the terms. So grace, real quickly and real simply, it can be defined as undeserved favor. Undeserved favor is grace. It's the quality in the heart of God that moves Him to save us from our sins without any merit or any work done on our part. It's totally and wholly given to us freely by the Lord Jesus Christ. That is grace. So think about Saul. He's killing Christians. Men and women, he's killing Christians. He hated the Lord Jesus Christ. He hated how the gospel was spreading throughout the earth. And based upon our Lord's identification with his people, Saul was actually persecuting the Lord. Why are you persecuting me, the Lord says. So it's not hard to see that Saul, he deserved the full force of God's wrath. I think we would all agree and say this man was guilty before the holy and righteous God. He deserved the full force of God's wrath. He deserved it. And yet... How does the sovereign and mighty Lord work in Saul's life? He saves him. He saves him from his sin. He saves him from the wrath of God that he deserved. He looked at Saul, the persecutor, and he said, I want that man. I love him. My sacrifice is sufficient for his sin. He is mine. And Paul would later write in Romans 3.24, he would write that we are justified by grace as a gift the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Praise be to his name. Christ the Lord is gracious. He is gracious. So it is with us, right? We've done nothing to deserve his favor, nothing to earn his wondrous redemption provided in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And yet he's given it to us. The sovereign, mighty Lord of creation is full of grace. His desires to pour out goodness and favor upon the unworthy. All we must do is come. We come to Him initially for salvation. We confess Him as Lord and we ask Him to forgive us. That's the call. And His heart is full of grace. See Him exercise it for the persecutor here. And then, once we're in the fold, once we have been redeemed again and again and again, we come back to Him, seeking grace, asking Him for favor. Lord, I have transgressed Your name. Forgive me. And He's more than eager to do it. Receive the life-giving grace of the king, sinner. Receive it again. <laughs> Receive it again. It's for you. It's for me. It's for all. But also, you see the mercy of Jesus Christ the Lord here as well. He's not only sovereign, mighty, and gracious, but he's also merciful. Namely, he does not give us what we deserve. He's merciful. Grace, undeserved favor. Mercy, not getting what you deserve. Two complementary characteristics of the king. Complementary characteristics of the Lord. And again, in Saul's case, he was not decimated to, the, to be dust of the earth as he deserved. That's, that's what he needed, what he deserved. We would say, give it to him, right? But the Lord was merciful. He did not give him what he deserved. And also, think about Ananias. Think about Ananias and the mercy that he received, right? And I believe for many of us, this was true of me, this is the mercy that I needed to see afresh as I've been studying this, this text. The Lord... The Lord, again, we've, we've spelled out what it means that Christ is Lord. So the Lord comes to him in a vision, tells him clearly to go and lay hands on Saul, who was ready for the gospel. Again, that's apparent in the call. But how did Ananias respond? Listen to this. Ananias answered initially, Lord, I, I've heard many 
things about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. You know, at first glance, you read this, and it seems like a totally reasonable response, right? I mean, for all that Ananias knew, this was his death sentence. You know, go, go lay hands on the man who's got authority to kill you. That's essentially what he was told to do. So we can, we can empathize a little bit with Ananias there. But then you step back and you think about who it was that he's questioning. He's questioning the Lord. He's disputing the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He's talking back to the Creator of the universe. He didn't obey right away, all the way, with a cheerful heart, right, as we are training our children to do. He didn't do that. Immediate, full obedience is what the sovereign, mighty, gracious Lord not only demands, but deserves. That is the, the response. So the questioning is not only disrespectful, but it shows a lack of trust. It shows a lack of belief. It shows a lack of devotion to the Lord. And it's a rebellion worthy of a sharp punishment. That's what Ananias deserved. Brothers and sisters, we do this all the time. We do this all the time. We don't obey all the way right away. And again, as we question His commands, as we choose not to obey them, what we're doing, we're, we're, we're not obeying our Lord as He deserves, but we're showing a distrust in His Lordship. And, and all of that is worthy of stiff discipline. It's worthy of punishment. But instead of cutting us off, instead of giving us what we deserve, how does the Lord respond to you? He responds with mercy. He responds with mercy. Listen what the Lord says. Go. He didn't even, he just gives the command again. Go. Go. He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I must show him how much he must suffer. The Lord simply commands him again instead of coming down with his harsh hand. The merciful Lord gives Ananias the opportunity to repent, to trust him, and to obey him. The sovereign and mighty Lord who breathed out stars in creation also bore the wrath we deserved on the cross. And day in and day out, he does not give us the punishment that we deserve for our sin. He's merciful. He's moved towards me and towards you with compassion. And he's patient with us. And then he grants us grace to learn obedience and to trust him more. And then, like he did with Ananias, he blesses us with joy, with peace, and increased faith. So praise be to the Lord. He is sovereign, he's mighty, he's gracious, and he is merciful. And as we see the lordship of Christ exercised, there ought to be thanksgiving in our hearts, right? This is our Lord. These truths can crush you, but these truths can also give you life. This is the God who died for you. This is the God who bids us come. Come and receive grace. Come and receive mercy. Come and live up under my sovereign and mighty rule and reign, which is for your good, for my honor. So this dips us then into application, right? This is the Lord. This is who He is. He's the Lord over the persecutor and the persecuted. So now then what do we do with that? How do we apply the Lordship of Christ into our lives? How then are we to live? There's two primary applications again that we see in the text. Trust and obedience. We are to trust the Lord and we are to obey His commands. Again, look at how the Lordship of Christ was applied in Saul's life. He's knocked down by the glory of the Lord. He's blinded and then he's commanded to go into the city and wait for someone to come and tell him what he's to do. The command's simple. Arise and go. 
What was Saul's response? He, 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 he gets up from the ground. He, he grabs his men. He goes into the city of Damascus. He obeys. In light of the sheer glory and power the Lord displayed, he trusted him and he obeyed his command. And then in Damascus, Ananias comes to him three days later. He explains the good news of the gospel and the call of discipleship, that is, in following the Lord. And what does Saul do? Again, the, the, the command is simple. Repent, be baptized, conform your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Saul's response is that he repents, he's baptized, and then according to verse 20, he immediately begins to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. Saul trusted and he obeyed his sovereign and merciful Lord. And this would then become the pattern of Saul's life, wouldn't it? He would go on to trust and obey his Lord regardless of the suffering that it brought, the isolation, the extended bouts of travel, and even the times when it seemingly didn't make sense. And in light of all that the Lord had, had done for him and the Lord's revealed character and will, Saul trusted his word and obeyed his commands. And then look at Ananias. Again, we see the Lordship of Christ applied in the same exact way, trust and obedience. The Lord appears to Ananias tells him to go and be the means through which this famous persecutor hears the gospel and is saved, and Ananias obeys. His trust in the Lord is feeble at first, but then with the assurance that the sovereign and mighty Lord is working, he departs and he goes. The command, rise and go. And his response, he departed, entered the house, he laid hands on Saul. So we stop, we think about our lives, think about your life, think about our lives in light of the Lord. Trusting in his word, and obeying his commands, it really is the only rational response that we ought to have. We are limited. The Lord knows no bounds. We are finite in every way. The Lord is infinite in every way. We are very slowly growing in wisdom. The Lord is wisdom and possesses it in infinity. We don't know what's coming tomorrow. The Lord has not, he not only knows what's coming tomorrow, but he has charted the course of all of history. And he's providentially working all things out to accomplish his pre-appointed means. We're sinful in desire, motive, action. And the Lord is completely and utterly holy. You see, his will and commands for us are, his, are the expression of his lordship. Ready for application in our lives each and every day. To not trust him and to not obey him is truly nonsensical when you think about it. It truly is. And yet constantly, this is our struggle, isn't it? This is our battle. This is the war that you and I are in each and every day. To trust and obey the sovereign, mighty, gracious, and merciful Lord. Trust Him and obey Him. This is the battle. It's a war to renew your mind. It's a war for your trust and obedience. The enemy is after it. He's after your mind. He's after your trust. And he's after your obedience more than anything. And he is tactically seeking to entice you and to entice me with our flesh to draw out, to draw our trust and obedience away from the Lord and onto something else, whether it be ourselves, some other ideology, some other thing. This is what the enemy is after. He's after your trust, and he's after your obedience. But in the midst of such a great and enduring war for our trust and obedience, let us not forget this passage and this testimony where the sovereign and gracious Lord conquers the most even heinous of sinners, the stronger man, I said this earlier, but the stronger man, Christ, has entered the house. He has bound the strong man, and he's now plundering his goods for his glory. This is the picture of what that is. This is, this is the promise being unfolded. This is what it looks like. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the advances of the kingdom of Christ. 
For the Lord, he is, the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord both of the persecutor and the persecuted. So therefore, brother and sister in Christ, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Each and every day, stoke the flames of your trust in the king. Go back to this. Who is the, what does it mean that Jesus Christ is Lord? What, what type of Lord is he? What are the characteristics of his lordship? That's the renewing of the mind that takes place. And it's like, okay, I want to trust this, which means I need to obey. Lord, how are you saying to me, arise and go? Help me to arise and go. What does that look like today, this moment? I want to arise and I want to go. I want to trust you and I want to obey your commandments. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign, you're mighty, you're gracious, and you're merciful. Thank you that you save sinners. What a wondrous picture of your salvation at work, your lordship being exercised and applied in the life of Saul the persecutor and in the life of Ananias the disciple. Lord, would you grant us faith to hear the call to arise and go and grant us obedient hearts, Lord, to do as, as we're called, to do so immediately without question and by your grace and by your Holy Spirit with a cheerful heart. So, Lord, as we move now to applying what we've heard, applying this text and the truths within it, would you lead us by your Spirit? Would you show us ways even this week that we can submit ourselves to you to follow you, God, for the, for the honor and the glory of your name as you rightly deserve. We pray, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.